Towards the end of November in 2014, I had a phone call one Saturday evening uh, around 10.30 uh, from a mum of one of the pupils of the school uh, where I used to be chaplain. She rang me to tell me uh, that a young man called Cam, who had left the upper sixth form uh, the previous July and was at university in Plymouth, was seriously ill in hospital uh, with meningitis. She rang because she just couldn't think of what else to do and she wanted to ask me to pray and of course I said I would. On Sunday and on Monday the news just got worse and worse. Cam was in a coma on a ventilator and the infection was uncontrollable. And then on the Monday his parents were told that there was only a very small chance that he would survive. That Monday lunchtime, I was actually in a prayer meeting uh, with some of the staff at the school, and I had a phone call uh, from one of Cam's friends who he'd been at school with. He was in tears on the phone, and he told me that he and all Cam's friends from school had come back from university around uh, the whole of Great Britain and from gap years, even abroad, and they'd all come back to Cheltenham to be together because they just did not know what to do with themselves. And he was ringing to ask if they could all come um, and meet me at school to pray. And so later that afternoon, I found myself sat in uh, the school chapel with eight 18-year-old rugby players, none of whom are Christians. And I listened to them cry out for their friend's life. And one boy, through his tears, cried this, God, I don't know if you're there or not, but if you are, you have to save Cam because we love him. At that point, I sat there saying to God, I know you're here, and if you ever need to do a miracle, it is now. You have to save this boy, not just for him, but for these boys sat here as well. Over the next few days, a ripple of prayer began for Cam around the school, and it spread worldwide. Our parents' prayer network was amazing anyway, and it really got going. And people across the world were praying in their churches and their communities for this young man who they didn't know who was in this coma in Plymouth. On the Wednesday morning, I sent a message uh, around the school to say that if anybody wanted to gather together to pray for Cam, we'd be meeting in, in this chapel at 10.30. 15 minutes later, 30 or 40 staff and pupils, many of whom weren't Christians, turned up to pray. And the faith that was shown through the prayers of those teenagers really challenged my own faith. 10 minutes after that meeting, I had a text to say that the doctors had just managed to control uh, the infection uh, in Cam's body, the first positive sign for four days. But at that point, even if he survived, the lasting damage uh, wasn't known. On the Friday, Cam was still slowly improving and people were still praying for him. On Sunday, I went down to Plymouth to see his parents and to take various cards and things. And as I went into the hospital uh, to meet Cam's dad, it was like meeting the father of a newborn child. You won't believe it, he said. His face was literally glowing. Uh, but Cam has just come off his ventilator. Uh, and they're still assessing him and bringing him out of sedation. But we would like you to go uh, to ICU and see him. 
Now, up to this point, Cam hadn't spoken. He just had his uh, ventilator taken out of his mouth, and um, he was still wired up to his eyeballs. But as I entered ICU, Cam's mum said to him, Cam, look who it is. And he responded uh, with some rather fruity language that I won't repeat here in church, but I'll tell you if you come and see me afterwards, uh, to the effect of, oh my goodness, what is she doing here? And at that point, his mum uh, burst into tears because it was the first time that he had recognised anyone since he'd come off his ventilator that morning. And it was the first sign that anybody had had uh, that he wasn't uh, brain damaged. I got to pray with the family, who are not yet Christians, before I left. And they, without a doubt, knew that they'd been held in prayer over that last week. And as I left, Cam's dad told me that they'd been told that even though he was out of his coma and things were looking more positive, he'd be in ICU for at least another two weeks. The next day, Cam came out of ICU. The next week, Cam came home from hospital. And two days after that, Cam uh, came to see us at school. And as he walked in and stood there with two of the friends who'd been crying out to God for him only a week before, um, I hugged him and he was really embarrassed because he was a 19-year-old boy. Uh, But I told him, I said, you are a walking miracle. And, And I told him about all the people that had been praying for him, how I really believed that God had healed him. And the only lasting damage that Cam has is a little bit of tinnitus in, his, in one ear. And we're praying that that goes too. During those few days, walking through the devastation of that family and that group of friends, sharing the heart cry of a whole community, the whole situation really challenged my faith. I knew Jesus. I've been a Christian for a long time. I had faith. But this just felt like a completely different ballgame. But most powerfully and most profoundly, what struck me was seeing the coming together of a whole community in faith and prayer, and then witnessing a miraculous healing. My faith and my trust in the power of God was really stretched during that time. And I'm sure that many of us here this morning have faced situations in our lives where our faith has been stretched and tested whether it's faith that God can heal or that God can save someone or that God can change a situation. We might have given our lives to Jesus and know the reasons in our heads why we believe, but do we have that depth and strength of faith to pray for the seemingly impossible? Do we believe that God can save people out there who don't yet know Jesus? And what about those situations where we're praying for people and they don't get healed? At the time we were praying for Cam to be healed, there was a girl in literally the next door school in Cheltenham that died of meningitis. And that left us with lots of questions. But should that ever stop us praying in faith or trusting in the power and the love of God? And so as we continue this morning to explore the area of sharing our faith, I want us to pause and ask ourselves a couple of questions. Is our expectation of what God can do God-sized or our-sized? And is that vision limited by our knowledge and our experience of who God is? 
And so with those questions just hovering around for us, let's delve into the Bible and the account we heard in our Bible reading of Jesus healing uh, of the boy with the demon. If you've got a Bible or your phone or whatever and want to have that Bible verse open, it's in Matthew 17, beginning at verse 14. So this story in the Bible is about a healing, yes, but it's mainly about faith. The faith of the Father and the faith of the disciples. So we have this father, this father who desperately loves his son and longs for his son to be free from these seizures he's having. We hear that these seizures are actually causing the boy uh, to fall into fire or into water. And so the effects and the risks of what is going on in this boy's life are much bigger than the actual seizures itself. And the man is desperate. You know, he's probably explored every other avenue open to him. And now here he is before Jesus. And we read in verse 14 that the man approached Jesus. Jesus didn't spot him in a crowd and go to him, but the father went to Jesus. Now, if you or I uh, were ill, we wouldn't bother going to a doctor if we didn't believe that they could make a difference to our situation. No, by going to see a particular doctor, we're demonstrating faith that they can do something to help us. And here the boy's father, by approaching Jesus, is demonstrating the faith that Jesus can change his son's situation. And then the first thing he asked Jesus is this, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. His heart cry is wrapped up in those three words, Lord, have mercy. Notice there that he calls Jesus Lord. In the Old Testament, the title Lord is only ever used for Yahweh, the one true God. It was not used like it is today uh, to refer to a person of status, uh, like the Lord Bishop or Lord Mountbatten or somebody like that. So by calling Jesus Lord, the boy's father is acknowledging that he believes that Jesus is God and has the power of God. He believes that Jesus has within his power and his gift the ability to demonstrate mercy to the man's son. The father has faith that Jesus has the power to heal his son. There is power in the name of Jesus. Lord, have mercy. But then we discover that there's another storyline going on here. And it's that of the faith of the disciples. Because as the father then points out to Jesus... I've already brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. I always wonder at this point, why did the father think that the disciples would be able to heal his son? Uh, and why, why couldn't they? And we'll come back to that point in a moment. But Jesus' reaction to them is really impatient and a little bit exasperated. He, he says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? I love this really human reaction of Jesus. He's addressing his disciples and the generation of people around him. And he's basically saying, oh, for goodness sake, people, you know, I've been with you all this time. How long will it be before you're going to get it? Why have you got no faith? And then after this little rant, Jesus goes on and heals the boy. But it's following the healing. We begin to be able to understand this other storyline that I mentioned The one about why the disciples couldn't heal the boy. 
there is an explicit expectation from both the father and the disciples themselves that the disciples should have been able to to free the boy from this demon, from these seizures. Uh, The disciples say, why couldn't we drive out the demon, they ask. So why do they have this expectation? Well, it's because they've done it before. In Matthew chapter 10, we find out that Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples to heal the sick, raise the dead, and to cast out demons. And they'd gone and they'd done just that. Nothing could stop them. They were riding the faith wave, if you like. Uh, And they'd seen God's kingdom come in miraculous ways. Their expectation of what God can do was high. About 18 months or so ago, uh, we were having, in the school that I used to work at, 14 hours of prayer. We used to do this uh, about once or twice a year. And teaching staff, um, support workers, uh, pupils, parents would sign up to come to the school chapel and pray for 15 minutes during that 14 hours. There was one girl at the school called Mel, and she joined us a couple of years previously. And and had thought very much that Christianity was for old people, you know, there might be some higher force out there but didn't know really anything about God. Uh, But when she joined the school, she found that uh, a couple of her best friends uh, were Christians, and I knew that these girls were praying for Mel. Uh, When one of the assistant chaplains uh, approached Mel and said, oh, would you like to come and sign up to do 15 uh, minutes of praying in chapel as part of this prayer day, uh, Mel signed up, even though she doesn't really know why she did it in the first place. And when it came to her time, she turned up in chapel, Uh, And she says there was some worship music playing at the front of chapel. And she went and she sat down on a bean bag and thought, why on earth am I here? Why did I agree to do this? But, you know, seeing as I'm here, I might as well just give God one last chance. And so she says that she said to God, I'm here. I'm opening my heart. And if you're here, come and find me. And she describes how at that moment she felt like a warm rushing feeling come over her. And she says that at that moment she knew God was real. And that was the start of her journey to finding Jesus as her Lord and Saviour. And it was wonderful for me to see this 17-year-old girl as she was then change as she became a Christian really over the next couple of months and she was literally shining for Jesus about the place. But why do I tell you that? It's because the effect of Mel's conversion was powerful. Her friends who'd been praying for her became bolder in sharing their faith. Other Christians in the school CU stepped out in faith as they saw firsthand that God is real, that God answers prayer and changes lives. It encouraged me to be bolder in my faith and was a great reminder to those of us who've been Christians for years and years that God does and still work in power to transform lives today. It was like our expectation of what God can and will do was ramped up. So think back to a time in your life, perhaps when you came to faith yourself, or a friend became a Christian, or someone you know was healed or a situation you'd been praying about was changed. What did that time do to your faith and your expectation of who God is and what God can do? I expect that if you're anything like me, 
your faith increased and was strengthened. Your belief that God can and does change people and situations was transformed. And you were reminded that God is indeed sovereign and merciful and compassionate. And perhaps you became more bold. You had more faith in believing for a time. So what had happened with the disciples since that time where they had seen people healed and the dead raised and demons cast out? Why is it that now Jesus is saying to them, well, you couldn't heal the boy because you don't have enough faith? Maybe they just got a bit blasé. Maybe like us, their expectation of the power of God had been weakened or dampened a bit by something. They were trying to perhaps do things in their own strength rather than in God's power. They'd done it before, you know, they'd driven out demons, they'd even raised the dead. So why not now? Were they relying too much on their past experience, their egotistical self, rather than in the loving power of God? But Jesus speaks right into their weakness, into their ego, into their self-reliance, their doubts, and says this. Because you have so little faith, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The words of frustration we heard from Jesus just a few moments ago now turn to words of encouragement. You have little faith, he's saying, but you only need a bit. Because even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it can move mountains. Now, Jesus' choice of a mustard seed as an illustration is really important here because everyone at that time will have known that a mustard seed is absolutely tiny, but it's a highly productive thing. And harnessed within that tiny seed is immense power for production. Jesus is saying, guys, it's not about you. You don't need immense faith. You only need faith this small. But do you have the faith in the power that is within you as my followers? Do you know the power that is available to you? Tap into it. Perhaps how familiar does that feel to us when we're thinking about sharing our faith? We hear Jesus' words in the Great Commission that Rich was speaking about last week, to go and make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And our response is, hmm, I'm not sure you really want me to do it, do you? You know, what if people are nasty to me when I start sharing my faith, or I answer a question in the way that they're not, they don't want me to answer? You know, I'm not sure that I have the faith to go and make disciples. Will Jesus really go with me? But we've missed the point. And the point is what Jesus is challenging his disciples, that it isn't about the amount of faith we have, but whether we believe that even with the smallest faith, God is in it. God has the power. Theologian R.T. Franz puts it like this. It's not the amount of faith which brings the impossible within reach, but the power of God which is available to even the smallest faith. And isn't that what limits us so much as Christians? We limit God. We make him us-sized rather than God-sized. We're people called to go, to make disciples, to share the good news of Jesus. 
But rather than trusting in the power of God, we make it about us. We doubt ourselves. We're scared. Well, if that's you and me, we need to know and trust that God does have the power to change lives. He will give us the words that we need in those moments where we're tongue-tied. He will heal. He will rescue people from slavery to sin. It is all about him, you see. His love, his good news, his grace, his promise, his power. He promises us he will never leave us. He promises to go with us. He promises us life now and life with him forever. We just need to spot what God is doing and go and join in. Tom Wright puts it like this. The size of the faith isn't important. What's important is the God in whom you believe. Or put another way, and I love this image. If you want to see the moon, the size of the window isn't important. What matters is that the window you're looking through is facing the moon. If you want to see the moon, the size of the window isn't important. What matters is that the window you're looking through is facing the moon. And maybe that's it in a nutshell. We're frustrated that we don't have the faith to believe or or feel that our expectations of God are limited. But if we're honest, we're trying to see the moon, but through the wrong window. So how can we ensure that we're looking through the right window, seeing God for who he really is? How can we expand our knowledge and experience of God and his power, which will then enable us to step out in faith? I think for a good number of us here, we might need to just realign or refocus or recommit in our Christian faith this morning. For some of us, we might need to actually just take on some good old-fashioned spiritual disciplines. You know, if you feel tired of Bible reading, sometimes I'm a bit of a chopper and changer. It's my personality. I do one sort of Bible study for a while and then move on to a different sort of Bible study when I get bored of that. Uh, Maybe you're like that or you're fed up of reading the Bible and you just don't know where to start. A quick tip which I've always found helpful in terms of getting to know more of God through reading the Bible. Okay, it goes like this. When you've read a Bible passage, look for the light bulb moment. It should just be coming up on the screen uh, here. So the light bulb. Ask yourself the question, how does this passage shed light on God and my relationship with God? The light bulb. Question mark. Think question mark. What question does this passage leave me with? Arrow. What should I do or change as a result of reading this passage? And then the sort of speech bubble. What do I need to say to somebody or who? Maybe you need to incorporate a new discipline of prayer into your life as well. Maybe just commit to praying for 15 minutes. Thank God. Say sorry to God. Pray for something that's going on in your life or your world. Share with God your life. Talk and listen to him. Maybe you need to do something with other people, perhaps join a connect group, which will help you to start looking out of that right window so that you're deliberately wanting to share your faith in your life with others and grow as a disciple of Jesus. Or maybe for you, you just need to enter into worship more fully. Leave your fear of letting go, your resistance to worship, your cynicism, your stuff, that we all come to church with at the door. And expect when you come here to meet with Jesus when we worship. 
If you want to see the moon, look out the right window. When I was a child, I, I sometimes used to stand on my mum and dad's feet and walk around with them. Anybody else do that here? Yeah? Or do their children did it with them? Um, sometimes we'd actually dance together with me stood on their feet, uh, holding onto their hands. And I wonder whether this is a helpful image for some of us here in terms of growing in our faith and our belief as disciples of Jesus. We need to just simply step onto Jesus' feet and walk his walk, dance his dance, and go where he would take us. If we want to see God at work, changing lives, changing this world, using us to bring people to know him, then the size of our faith isn't really that important. What is important is the God in whom we believe. Do we limit God and his power? Are our expectations of God big enough? Jesus was challenging the disciples in this passage to expand their vision of who God, what God can do. I'm sure many of us here have heard the story of the famous tightrope walker, Blondin. If you haven't, I'm going to tell it just as we uh, come to a close. In the 19th century, um, Blondin was uh, the most famous tightrope walker in the world. Uh, and in June 1859, he became the first man in history uh, to walk on a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. Because uh, it was such a big issue at the time, big thing, over 25,000 people uh, gathered to watch him walk the 1,100 feet uh, suspended on a tiny rope, 160 feet above the raging waters. He, he worked without a safety net or any sort of harness, and the slightest slip would have proved fatal. When he safely reached the Canadian side, the first time he did it, the crowd went mental. Uh, there was a mighty roar. And in the days that followed, he actually walked across the falls many more times, backwards and forwards. And once he decided to walk across on stilts, uh, another time he took a chair and a stove, stopped in the middle and cooked himself an omelette and ate it. Uh, he was completely bonkers. Uh, and once he carried his manager across on the picture there uh, on, as a, on a piggyback, and once he pushed a wheelbarrow across, loaded with 350 pounds of cement. On another occasion, he asked the cheering, uh, ecstatic crowds if they thought he could push a man across in the wheelchair, in the wheelchair, in the wheelbarrow, sorry. And a mighty roar went up from the crowds, inspiring one particular man uh, who was cheering really loudly and enthusiastically. Blondin said, you know, sir, do you think that I could safely carry you across in this wheelbarrow here. Uh, yes, of course, the man said. Blondin turned to him and said, get in then. The man refused. And so the message is simple. As individuals and together as a church, we need to believe that God does have the power to transform the world and transform lives. Do we really believe that Jesus is the answer? Do we trust that Jesus has the power to love and to forgive and to restore and to bring salvation enough to get into the wheelbarrow ourselves? Or would we, like that man in the story, prefer to stand on the sidelines in our comfortable place and just watch from a distance? Being a disciple of Jesus will sometimes feel risky. It will often be scary. But if we, like the disciples, want to expand our vision of what God can do, it's about having faith and believing 
and then being ready to let him take you on this exciting journey. It's about getting into the wheelbarrow.